All right. The name of this message is, you are the apple of his eye. You've heard that idiom before, that expression, right? The apple of, you know, being the apple of someone's eye. We think of it as, as an English expression or phrase or idiom, but it actually goes way back uh, to the Hebrew Bible. There's many, many phrases that come from the Bible, like Jesus is, you know, the eye, you know, easier for a, 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 you know, a camel to go through the eye of needle than a rich man to get in heaven, things like that, or by the skin of your teeth that came from the book of Job. There's so many, you know, and the apple of one's eye, we find this a, a few times in the Bible, and it's spoken first and foremost of God's love for his people, and specifically in the Old Testament of his people, Israel. And right now, it's kind of interesting because there's a, the, the world that we live in is just filled with thick irony right now, you know? I just look around and you see what's going on in politics and, and, and you know, it's crazy. In the name of health, they're doing a lot of weird, unhealthy things, you know? Uh, I'm talking about those in power and the mainstream media, you know? Uh, in, the, in, in the realm of maybe, for instance, wearing masks. You've, masks are so important that you wear a mask and then you're safe. And in doing that, the irony is all kinds of people thought they were safe with a mask on and were transferring COVID all over the place, you know, to older people, you know, when if they realized, mm, man, maybe they're not so safe and we need to be even more careful around older people, amen? It just, uh, it's just a lot of crazy things. I don't want to get into that whole thing. I'm just thinking how ironic the world is right now, you know? And another irony that I, I see is that, you know, we have uh, the way the Jew is treated, Jewish folks in general. And uh, when you look at the eye of God, you know, the apple of God's eye, as the scriptures say, and refers to Israel, his people, as the apple of his eye. We'll see some scriptures on that in a, in a few minutes. It's kind of interesting how God would view, and I'm not talking about, you know, uh, I'm talking about the nation of Israel. I'm not talking about every rebellious because someone's Jewish or automatically right with God. That you're... Your heritage doesn't make you automatically right with God, right? The Bible says the just shall live by faith. But God made promises to Abraham, his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and to the nation of Israel. And even when they were in rebellion, God still upheld his side of the covenant promises. And he knew there would always be a remnant. Amen? Now, it's interesting. Uh, John Voight. Uh, anybody heard the actor John Voight? Very famous actor. I think all these heads are going up and down. Uh, he singled out a couple of people that he felt were inciting anti-Semitism, and he wrote his own letter, uh, open letter, to, uh, that was published by uh, Variety. And in this letter, uh, some time ago, he said, there are obvious, they are obviously ignorant, and this is specifically a guy named Cruz and another one named Bartom. They're obviously ignorant of the whole story of Israel's birth. When in 1948, the Jewish people were offered by the UN a portion of land originally set aside by them in 1921. And the Arab Palestinians were offered the other half. Voigt uh, goes on to say, quote, the Arabs rejected the offer and the Jews accepted, only to be attacked by five surrounding Arab countries committed to driving them into the sea. And that's a historical fact. I mean, right when they Boom, the nation became a nation. Again, officially in the world's eyes, boom, uh, there was war. And he goes on to say, Voigt goes on to say, quote, after years of trying to make peace, the wars they had to fight, being attacked by their enemies and still being attacked. And finally, after years of running into bomb shelters and having hundreds of civilians killed by suicide bombers and finally retaliating, he goes on to talk about how 
their, their peers, you know, have chosen, quote, to take out poison letters, quote, unquote. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that you had such vitriol in this nation against, you know, we're supposed to be a democratic republic, right? Against the only democracy for some time in the Middle East. But uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you look at it prophetically, you see that Muslims would have movies that are pro-Muslim made by Hollywood that encourage, you know, uh, that, that are friendly toward Islam often when they're going around bombing everybody, many of them, and that Christians who are known for uh, giving more charity than anybody else on the planet are known as the scum of the earth. There's something spiritual going on, you know? And another irony is you have John Voight, you know, a, a Hollywood actor, you know, standing up for Israel. and He's not Jewish, I don't believe, you know? Some of you know him as Angelina Jolie's dad, you know? It's kind of ironic, too, because when she was young, she's probably known as, you know, Voight's, John Voight's daughter. <laughs> a lot of ironies in this message. But anyway, it's kind of interesting because he talks about they're obviously ignorant of the whole story of Israel's birth. And he brings their birth back to 1948, May 14, 1948. Uh, obviously, Mr. Voight knows they had been birthed years before that. But he was talking about agreement. And that was right on the heels of, you know, you're talking, what, 15 years after, you know, not, not that many years, I'm sorry, less than that, years after World War II and the Holocaust ended. And, the, and, the, and you had 6 million Jews killed by the Nazis. They had a goal of killing 11 million Jews, and they were stopped short of it. Uh, and, but when you look at the biblical picture, you cannot understand Israel's history unless you go to the Bible, and you can't understand and appreciate how much you are the apple of God's eye until you understand how much he loves Israel and how faithful he has been to that nation. And when I say you are the apple of his eye, I'm, I'm assuming that obviously means if you're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And what does that mean to be the apple of his eye? So you go way back to Genesis. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis chapter 13, 12 and 13, we see God calling Abraham. And he calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees which was kind of a luxurious place uh, 4,000 years ago. They found hot tubs back in that were, you know, they found hot tubs that were around 4,000 years ago. Only that far back have they found hot tubs in Ur of the Chaldees. And he's living a pretty, leaving a pretty cool place, but he's told to worship the one true God. Abraham is told to leave his family. Can you imagine that? I'm going to give you a place that, you know, God would call the promised land, right? And he says, there's, you know, he lets... Abraham and his descendants know that it's going to come at a certain time. Tells Abraham it'll be over 400 years until they fill up the measure of their wickedness. The Canaanite, which was made up of all kinds of different people that were uh, becoming more and more wicked. And God knew they would reject his calls to repentance and that he would jettison them out of the land. And he'd give, he'd give Abraham and his descendants the land. So what's remarkable about this prophecy is you're starting with one man named Abraham. And you're going to make this entire nation just that prophecy right there. Sometimes we talk about all these prophecies and it's dizzying. And I'm not going to go through a dizzying amount of prophecies. Sometimes when I do a message on Israel, we go through a ton of prophecies. And sometimes I think people's heads are spinning. There's just so many. And I'm only scratching the surface, you know. But I want to focus more on how we are the apple of the Lord's eye. And have a little bit of a devotional, but also understand what time it is on the prophetic clock. And how we need to recognize the Lord cares for us, just like he's cared for Israel, if you're a believer in the Lord. Amen. And that's important because there's a lot of crazy things going on today. A lot of fear in the world. 
a fear of death, a fear of, you know, what's coming upon the earth, just as Jesus said. But you see, according to the book of Joshua, uh, we read that, that Abraham's family were a bunch of idolaters. Terah and his family were idolaters. And it doesn't tell us what gods they worship, but when we go back to Mesopotamia and that area of the world into Abraham's time, we find out that they worshiped all kinds of different gods, different idols. And their chief god was the moon god. And that moon god was, you know, a, a, a god that was supposedly uh, the head of families, the head of crops, and controlled the cycles of the earth and so forth. And so Abraham may have been, because most people alive at that time would be worshiping that moon god, a moon god worshiper. And Abraham left, and God gave him a promise in Genesis chapter 13. If you can go there with me, please. Genesis chapter 13. Go ahead and just go to verses 14 and 15. Chapter 13, 14, and 15. And we read, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the, this, uh, the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. That's quite a promise. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, verse 16. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered, which is interesting when you understand, this is heavy, that Abraham's descendants aren't just the Jews. We'll see that in the scripture. His physical descendants are the Jews. The nation of Israel has belonged to the Jews, and God's not done with his promises to the nation of Israel. Amen? But also we'll see that if you are a Gentile believer, the scriptures say that we've been grafted in to the olive tree and that we're children of Abraham through faith. And now it gets really crazy because in the Great Tribulation period, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, the last book of the Bible, it talks about those who come out of the Great Tribulation are people from every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. And they're so numerous, you can't count them. You couldn't do a, a you know, you couldn't go around trying to find out how many, there's so many Christians. And right now there's hundreds of millions of people. Uh, there's over, you know, Christianity is considered the biggest religion by far on the earth. Uh, Islam is quite a distant second. And that doesn't mean everybody that claims to be a Christian is a Christian. That's obviously not true. But a good percentage, hopefully, are genuine believers that are trusting Jesus. Now, it's interesting, and if you're one of those that calls yourself a Christian, make sure you're real. You're really trusting him and truly following him. So he gives him this promise, but he gives the same promise to Abraham's son Isaac because it was given to Abraham. So I want you to go now to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, verse 3. Okay, and here we have, you know, uh, a wonderful, wonderful promise. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, to, uh, due to you and your descendants. I will give all these lands, and I will establish an oath, which I swore to your father Abraham. He's talking to Isaac. He's, he's made a covenant with him. Amen? He's keeping his covenant. Now go to, Isaiah, or go to Genesis chapter 28, verse 13. Genesis chapter 28, verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, your Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the land that, and he, and he goes, watch what he says. And this land, and on this land which you lie, I will give to what you and to your descendants. If you back up, look at verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba, uh, Beersheba, from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now it's interesting, he's talking to Jacob here. So I promised Abraham, I promised Isaac, I promised Jacob, 
dad, you know, the father of the nations, amen, father of uh, uh, the nation of Israel, and the father of many nations. Then you have the promise reiterated to his son, then to his grandson, then Isaac, then to his grandson Jacob. And then this is a promise to all of Israel. Now, when you think this through, it's like you've got these incredible promises. And I don't, ha- I don't have time to get into it, but one of the things I was going to do, and a message that I've been working on, which may be more than one message, it's looking at uh, the fact that God is an apologist in the Old Testament and how he uses apologetics to show he's the one true God. We just studied that recently just in one message uh, regarding his showing he's the one true God to Egypt, amen? And now all 10 plagues were basically God demonstrating that he is the one true God, amen? Because each of the 10 plagues was targeted against what? A different what? A different what? A different, amen, Jim, a, a different Egyptian deity, Okay. And what's interesting, it's so funny, if people are listening, they don't see the congregation out here, uh, they always think Jim has the answer, half the time, because, you know, Jim has the answer a lot of the time, Jim Sanford has the answer a lot of the time, sometimes we have three or four Jims here, you know, and I thought, I'm always saying, Jim, <laughs> last week I think it was the other Jimmy over there, anyway, and are all Jimmy's big here, by the way? Yeah, I think so, it's kind of a trip, if you want your kid to be big, name him Jim. You know? Anyway, it's kind of interesting because when we see this, we see these promises to Israel. We live in a hostile world. This is a, this, these are people that could have just been wiped out in Egypt, but God sets them free by his miracles. And after he sets them free from Egypt, he brings them into the promised land. Of course, there was the wandering in the wilderness for a while. He brings them into the promised land. Now, what's interesting is God also warns because he knows. Now, I don't want to get too deep, but remember, there is a spiritual war. Okay, you have to keep that in mind. In the very beginning, when, when humanity fell, the Bible says God made mankind upright, but man has sought out his own evil ways or his own devices, and he fell. And as a result of that fall, he needed to be redeemed. Amen? So Satan tried to corrupt the earth. There's a spiritual war. There's a spiritual dimension, no doubt about it. Many of you have experienced it to one degree or another. I did before I was saved by the demonic side, and then since I've been saved from the power of the Holy Spirit and God working in my life. Uh, and there was a spiritual war in Genesis chapter 3, 15 and 16. You read about, you know, the proto-evangelium, which is the first time you see the gospel, right? And the seed of the woman, right, will crush the head of the seed of who? The serpent, amen? And there's that spiritual war. So Satan knew the seed of the woman is coming and he tried to destroy humanity so that seed would never come. Hence, his seduction of the world into violence and, and, and sexual perversion, all these different things, uh, trying to bring destruction to the world and bringing God to a point where God's like, yeah, God knew this would happen, but I have to judge my people. But Satan's not going to win, amen? You can't beat God. You can't even beat, not one move beats the Lord, amen? Every move actually plays into his hands. That's how sovereign and powerful our God is. But over and over again, there were those who would seek to snuff out. So if you're Satan and you know the seed's coming, and the seed's coming through the woman, right? And then God chooses Abraham. And what's his promise to Abraham? Through you, right? All the nations, through your seed, all the nations of the world will be what? Blessed. Amen? Here we are in this country. What book are most people reading? Spiritual book. The Bible. <laughs> I mean, just think about how mind-boggling this is. And who are we talking about as the father of our faith? Abraham. 4,000 years later, 
just mind-boggling. You don't even think about these prophecies, but that's one of the prophecies, you know, and, and that they would even become a nation's heavy. But one of the strong apologetics the Lord uses in the book of Isaiah, which I don't have time to get into it, but you've seen it before because I've shared in depth on it, is, is that God says that he's the one true God. And he says to the false gods, he says, and of the false gods, that they can't even tell the future. In fact, one prophecy says, bring your astrologers, let them come forth, Isaiah 47 at the end to the Babylonians, you know, let the astrologers go forth. They can't tell the future like me. He, he says, he goes, they can't even deliver themselves from the coming judgment or, or he says from the flame. They're going to be judged. But he says, who can tell you about the establishment of the ancient nation, speaking of Israel? So his apologetic is not just what's going to happen in the future with Israel, but how he established them in the first place. But he goes on to say, when you read chapter 43, 44, 45, and you read chapter 44, then the beginning of 45, he talks about how he declares the end from the beginning, right? And he talks about how he would set them free from their Babylonian captivity in the book of Daniel and, and in uh, Jeremiah, part of the book of Daniel, right? But he also tells them that he would deliver them in Isaiah and he'd rise up a man by the name of Cyrus, a king, king of Persia. Well, that was 100 years before Cyrus rose. Well, he just got lucky. Some king arose and set him free. And, you know, you know and, well, no, it's not just uh, getting, getting the king doing that specific activity right, which is pretty astonishing in itself. He, na- he said what his name would be Cyrus, okay, 100 years earlier. That's just mind-boggling. And no country has had its future foretold like Israel's and then actually fulfilled it. I mean, they would cease to be a nation more than once. And it happened. Show me a country that ceased to be a nation more than once. And then after a bunch of years, became a nation again and again. I mean, Israel ceased to be a nation for, you know, since right after Christ was crucified, which, by the way, was prophesied, remember? Daniel 9, Messiah will be cut off in the Old Testament. Messiah will be cut off, right? And then what will be destroyed, says? The temple will be destroyed. That's why when you're witnessing to a Jew, you can say, hey, you know what? Your, your Messiah is either Jesus or you have no Messiah, because in Daniel chapter 9, it says the Messiah will be cut off, then the temple will be destroyed, the sanctuary. Well, guess what? That means whoever the Messiah is, he would come before the temple was destroyed. And that was Jesus. And he would be cut off, and that was Jesus. You see what I'm saying? And so it's interesting when you look at these prophecies, they're just so mind-boggling. But I want you to pay special attention to God's love, because that's the emphasis. The emphasis isn't going through a bunch of prophecies about Israel tonight, although we're looking at some of them. And it's just when you see what's going on in Israel this day, it, what's the most disputed piece of real estate on planet Earth? Jerusalem, by far. And that's exactly what it says in Zechariah chapter 12. And, and our battle of Armageddon has to do with that land. That's exactly the, what the Bible says is going on. See, we could be here at this Bible study, studying the Bible, have all these prophecies, right? If the Bible wasn't true. And there would be no mention of all these things that the Bible talks about. We just say, well, it's an interesting book. But it says a lot of things. Like, Maybe it'll happen someday, some of these things. No, it's already been happening over and over and over again. And the whole setup of the world right now, and the way it is, reflects exactly the prophetic picture that God gives us. So in this message, instead of going through a bunch of different prophecies on Israel, I want to go through some of the main outlines to show how they're the apple of his eye. But guess what? That means you are the apple of his eye too. And turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Verse 
Verse one, now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who, look at verse three. And I will bless those who what? Bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Wow. And look what it says. And in you, all the what? Families of the earth will be blessed. And you put that together with other prophecies about his seed and so forth and blessing of the nations coming through uh, the seed and so forth. It's quite, now it's interesting. You don't want to mess with Israel. I did a three or four part series. Maybe it was five. I can't remember how many parts I did. That was so many years ago. But called Don't Mess with the Weatherman. And I showed you specific scriptures where the Lord says that those who mess with his people Israel, he will chase them with his storms. And then we looked at all these calamities that happened against nations that came against Israel not long after they came against Israel. One guy checked out that message and he said, man, he had you know, people employed under him and he said, I had one of them I just spending the day. See if all these things happened. I can't believe it. And, he, and he goes, the guy goes back. I don't even think the guy was a Christian that was checking out. He goes, they all happened. Just like he said, I looked it up and they happened right after this happened, then this would happen. And, you know, hurricanes, everything else, just uh, crazy stuff. And he said, in fact, I found some, some more too, you know. You could actually do it with Japan. It's a whole other thing. You know, I've looked at Japan as well. Uh, but he says, you know, he'll chase them with a storm. And that could be metaphorical to a degree and could be quite literal, it seems. Listen, watch, listen to that series. I think you'll be blown away. But I want you to go now to Zechariah chapter 2. As you're going there, do you remember when Balaam was hired by King Balak? Zechariah chapter 2. When Balaam was, uh, you know, hired by King Balak, and they were having trouble with the Malachites and the Moabites and so forth, and uh, just subsequent to this, but Balaam, you know, was offered money from King Balak to curse Israel. Do you remember what happened when he went up on that mountaintop with with Balaam, Balaam and Balak are on this mountaintop looking down at Israel being encamped together. And they were encamped, by the way, when you look at Israel's encampment, I don't have time to get any depth into it, but they were in the form of a huge what? Does anybody remember? A huge cross. When you look at north, south, and east, and west, it's a long, one's, one's long and one's shorter. And in the middle, there was the sanctuary, the portable sanctuary, the tabernacle. And smoke would be coming up from the sacrifices in the middle of that cross, which is a picture of who? Jesus. Amen. The whole thing was a picture of Jesus. It's all just so mind-blowing. So uh, remember when Balaam would pronounce, you know, try to pronounce a curse, what would come out of his mouth? A blessing. And it would boomerang on Balaam, on Balak. And he's like, I said, Balak clapped his hands. What are you doing? You know, and you're, you're fighting against God is what you're trying to do. And, and you can't win. And it's just amazing because look at Zechariah now, chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. We read, For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you, what? Touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plundered, be plundered for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. 
Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Now, it's quite remarkable. He talks about how Israel is the apple of his eye in the context of protecting her. Amen? I think that's important that we understand the context there is quite remarkable. But, uh, you know, you might see that phrase and think it's only once in the Bible, but that apple of his eye comes a few times. In fact, Moses is the first one to use that phrase, and it's an expression of God's loving and providential care uh, for the nation of Israel during her wilderness journeys. And we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, In a desert land he found him. In a barren and howling waste he shielded him, and he cared for him. He guarded him. As the apple of his eye. Amen? So that's interesting. I think it's really interesting. Uh, what's the apple of your eye? Does anybody know? It's the pupil, the middle of your eye. It's the pupil of your eye. And uh, we, we realize that it's something very, very valuable because in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2, we read, Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. So he's saying the apple of the eye in this context is, is like his teaching, his word. Something very, very important is like the apple of your eye. And we read in Psalm 17, 8, and this is King David crying out to the Lord uh, and uses the apple of, eye, apple of one's eye expression as a prayer to God for guidance and protection from David's enemies and, 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 King, and Israel's enemies. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye, Psalm 17, 8. So the references are Deuteronomy 32.10, Proverbs 7.2 is the next one I gave after that, and then Psalm 17.8. And then, of course, uh, we're li- we've looked at Zechariah chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. That's four references to the apple of one's eye, which is really interesting because it gets a little bit deeper than that because Israel is the apple of the Lord's eye, okay? It gets deeper than that, though, because the word for the apple of one's eye is, comes from the word ish, which is the Hebrew word for man, okay? But it's, it's you know, so you have this uh, ishon, I-S-H-O-N would be our transliteration for apple, coming from the word ish. And it means little man of his eye, you know, um, if you're just looking at the etymology of it. And what do you mean little man of his eye? Will you ever talk to somebody and you're, you're close enough to see their pupil and the light's right? And what do you see in their pupil? You see, you see yourself, an image of your whole, your whole body or how, depending how close you are, what they're seeing of you. You just see yourself, okay? So that's the way it came to be, you know, a little man of the eye. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. And it's really interesting when you realize that when someone's looking at you, the reflection of you is in their eyes. Well, when Israel is the apple of God's eye, it's saying, same thing, saying something really deep, that God's eye is on who? Israel. His compassion, the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he has not taken his eyes off of them. And when you look at God's word, you see what's in his heart and what's in his eyes. And it's his promises to Israel. Amen? Now, it gets heavier, of course, because what happens when somebody, you know, if you feel like you're going to learn accidentally or someone purposely is trying to poke you in the eye. Someone pokes me in the chest, pokes me in the arm, you know. I might get like, whoa, what are you doing? You try to poke me in the eye? You know, I'm going to, you know, love you still. 
It doesn't mean you won't get a broken hand in the meantime because I'm just going to freak out a little bit, you know. Uh, there's only two places a man freaks out the most, and the eyes and the privates, you know. So, and gals, you know, you ever been poked in the eye? Any of us. It's just a horrible thing. And that's because it's something very valuable to us, our eyes, right? And when you mess with God's people, you're messing with the apple of his eye. And when you poke God in the eye, you get his attention. And when you curse those that God intends to bless, he says, if you bless them, you'll be blessed. But if you curse them, you'll be cursed. And I could actually go through a bunch of messages or a bunch of scriptures on that concept of not just Abraham, but his descendants. And we could go through Israel's history. You look at Israel's history and you see that those who've come against him. I mean, there's whole books. Read the book of Esther. See what happened to Haman, right? Read Obadiah. Obadiah isn't even to Israel, really, although it mentions Israel being restored there because it has to do with her Babylonian captivity. And it ties to the Edomites. And it's about how God's going to judge the Edomites because Edom was Esau's brother. And, e and Edom uh, ransacked Israel when she was taken into captivity by the Babylonians and actually took fugitives and kidnapped them and sold them into slavery and actually didn't help their, her, his brother because Esau's descendants were Edom and that's, they lived up in Petra. In fact, we'll do a whole study on Edom. The whole book's the shortest book in the, in the, in the Old Testament pretty soon. We'll try to get a message or two on that soon. It's just 21 verses or so. And it's just heavy because Edom was messing with Israel. And he said to them, to, to Edom, because they've messed with Israel and in her heart, hardship when she was going to Babylonian captivity, that they weren't allies. They tried to loot her and destroy her and take her land after that. Because Israel, man, they went everywhere during the Babylonian captivity. I mean, there was only like, uh, they, so many of them were killed. And the 20,000 or so that were left were taken into captivity in Babylon. Some went to Egypt and didn't work out for them because they rebelled against the Lord. And the Edomites came in and said, oh, we're going to take their land, you know. The Edomites dealt in Petra, the city of Petra, you know. And God dealt with the Edomites. And uh, I'm tempted to go into that right now, what he did to the Edomites and how that's a fulfilled prophecy too. You shake your hand and go, wow, that is radically fulfilled to this day. But if I, get, if I go through, do some stuff on Obadiah, I'll steal the thunder from that message. So we'll get into that next week or the week after. We'll look into, you know, we'll go through an entire book in a, in, in a, in a Wednesday or two. But it's really heavy. So Israel is the apple of his eye. And you look at what happened to, this, in this, to Spain when they persecuted the Jews. You look at what happened to, the, to Germany, right? World War II. I mean, the country was just destroyed for quite some time. And you had Western and you had Eastern uh, Germany for uh, a lot of time, you know, under communist control for a long period of time. And you can go through just the nations and, and, and not just, you know, what happens when you... And I'm not saying by saying this that everything the Israeli government does is right. No, read your Bible, right? Israel makes a bunch of mistakes, amen? God's promises are to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that he'll always have a remnant, amen? And that he is the one that ultimately is the boss of Israel. But you don't mess with the Jewish people. And to think that he equates... Israel has the apple of his eye. And then to realize that, guess what? If you belong to Jesus, you're a child of Abraham through faith. Amen? It's pretty heavy when you think of how much God loves you and wants to protect you. And that's the kind of message I think is important in the time in which we live. Because there's a lot of rhetoric against Christians right now, isn't there? You know? Uh, especially because they're not, uh, the irony is, there's so many ironies. I was just talking to someone today, you know, the irony that, uh, that the left calls, calls themselves, the, you know, that they're, they're the woke, 
you know? It's like, they're, they're, they're woke? It's like, what are they talking about? You know, Ephesians 5.11, you know, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, right? And it says, awake, O sleeper, let the light of Christ shine on you, amen? Uh, the believer who knows Jesus is spiritually awake, amen? Uh, those who are rejecting God are not awake. They're in the dark. That's why they don't even know basic biology today, the difference between a male and a female. They don't know what is alive and what's alive. Oh, they know. They know that's not a male or that male is not a female. They know that. They know that's a baby inside the womb, okay? It's lying to yourself. I think there are some people that are deceived because they're just taught, oh, it's just a blob and they've probably never seen an ultrasound. But most of them know, okay? Most people know this by now. But it's wanting to be in the dark. It's wanting to be asleep spiritually. And there's a lot going on. And Christians will be hated more and more because we stand. Because guess what? When you're wicked and you want to live wickedly and you want to kill babies, because you have one group of people trying to protect these babies, you have another group of people slaughtering them and celebrating sometimes to slaughter them. That's just mind-boggling when you think about it. You have other people saying, hey, we're male and female. And then you have parents, a mom that says, oh, I always wanted a daughter. You're really a girl. Or, oh, you just don't realize it. And you have that breaks my heart for thousands and thousands of little girls that are forced to be little boys and thousands and thousands of little boys that are forced to be little girls. I knew kids in my neighborhood. They, you know, you know there were times, hey, I'm, I'm going to be honest, you know. My, my brother's, you know, a year and a half younger than me. My sisters are all playing dolls and stuff. And I'm like, or they're playing house or something, man. I just want someone to play with sometime. I'm a little kid, you know. And it's like, they never let me play with them. But I would like, let me do something, you know, at least let me, you know take Johnny out for a walk or something, you know? I don't know what I was thinking. I just remember sometimes thinking, how come I can't play? When I was a little kid, well, that explains a lot now that I think about it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? But if, if let's say I'm this little boy, and let's say, and I never, I never played with my sisters like that. We, we had a great life together and stuff, but I never like played with them and their friends. I walked in one time when they were having a slumber party and they were all playing a thing called Green Ghost and I was you know, younger than two of them, older than one. And the older ones were having a slumber party with gals over and it was dark in the hallway and they were, and I walked in. I won't even finish that story because that was a bad story, you know. I deserved every swat I should have got. Okay. Anyway, but I just know kids are different and they had a thing in regard, it was Mattel or one of these. that I, I was sharing this with recently with someone because I just uh, saw it not too long ago. Again, I'd seen it before. But it was an interesting story uh, that, one, a Mattel or one of these, Hasbro, it was Hasbro. They said they wanted to market a playhouse for boys and girls, you know, because right now they're trying to have aisles that are all one now, you know, and this was some time ago and they're just playhouse for boys and girls. So it's what you do is you just, it's kind of like a dollhouse, but it's for boys too. And hopefully they'll all accept it. And, and one of the people that was, you know, uh, I think it was like a manager of a store. He said, it's not working. He goes, the boys are playing, you know with that playhouse, but they're catapulting the dolls off the roof, you know. And I thought, yeah, you know, boys, boys, you know. And if my sisters let me play with them, that's probably be doing something like that, you know. I don't know. And, uh, but anyway, there's so much weirdness going on in this world that we live in. And we see the emperor has no clothes, right? We're like, it's obvious. But we're the ones that, you're not being scientific. Oh, really? Hmm. Uh, it's just bizarre. So anyway, God tells them that he's going to protect them and that they're the eye of the people, of, uh, the apple of his eye. Some translations actually translate pupil of his eye because they understand it's talking about that part. But I like, the, I like the fact that it's translated more literally apple of his eye. Now keep in mind, the Lord did say that when you come into the land over and over again, that 
I'm not going to let you stay in the land that I'm giving you if you do the wicked things those nations are doing. So Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 12, remember? That's what he says, when thou art come in the land, thou shalt not learn to practice the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among thee anyone who makes a son or his daughter to pass through the fire, okay, or that, or that you know, does witchcraft or a medium or a wizard, reads omens, divination, all those kinds of things. And he goes, because if you do the things that those nations are doing, he goes, then I will cast you out of the land. You'll be vomited out of the land. And Israel did indeed uh, go into much rebellion against the Lord and began to worship the idols that were, people were worshiping around them and fell into idolatry at times. And we know, the, we know there was, go through the judges, even before you have the Assyrian captivity under, with the northern kingdom, okay? And then the southern kingdom over, under the Babylonian captivity. So I want to read you one prophecy, though, and there's so many of them, but I was just looking at Amos 9.14. Listen to this. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will build the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. So there's all these prophecies about Israel would be jettisoned from the land, and then the Lord would bring them up, and they'd have to rebuild their cities. They'd have to replant their vineyards, replant their gardens, you know? Did that happen in our country? Did that happen to Costa Rica? Did that happen to Mexico? Did that happen to, you know, Venezuela? Did that happen to Cuba? I mean, just go, no. But you see over and over again, and it's not just this happening, it's all kinds of things that they would lose their language. They spoke Yiddish, you know. Hebrew became a language that was just spoken by the scholars, you know. And then they'd restore their language to them. And now you go to Israel, they speak Hebrew, you know. Just all kinds of things. In fact, we go witness out here. Sometimes we go witness on Third Street or different places when we go street witnessing. But there, man, you go to Ben Yehuda Street. And Ben Yehuda is the name of the guy who restored, the, you know, had played the biggest role in restoring the Hebrew language to the Jewish people. It's just a place filled with prophecy. It says the children will be playing in the streets again. Yeah, you go there, that, that's it, you know. And it's just amazing. And it says there'll no longer be two kingdoms because remember they were divided under King Solomon. So first the northern kingdom, the 10 nations went into captivity. Then 150 or so years later, after they went into captivity to the Assyrians, uh, Judah went into captivity to the uh, Babylonians. But he said there'll no longer be two sticks, but there'll be one stick when they return to the land. There'll be one nation. Now you go to Israel, you don't go to like, oh, we're going to go visit the 10 nations. Oh, now we're going to go to visit the two nations. No, it's one country. I mean, it's just things that I don't have written down. There's, I wasn't planning on saying, just come to my mind. We could talk about things that just come to our minds, all of us, and just have a great time sharing about all the prophecies we know that are coming to pass in Israel and have come to pass. It's mind-boggling when you think about it. But all of this is because God is faithful and they are the apple of his eye. And the crazy thing is, is even though the nation Israel hasn't been faithful, amen, he brings them back in a state of unbelief. And some say, well, this isn't the restoration of Israel mentioned in the Bible because when they are restored, it talks about how they'll know God and everything else. I'm like, uh -huh. yeah, that's when they're ultimately restored spiritually too. But you read Ezekiel chapter 34, 35, and 36, and it says he brings them back in a state of unbelief right? And then he brings them, and then he gives them a new heart, and then they call upon the Lord after they're brought back into the land. So it's right on schedule right now. And of course, all the nations would be, Satan wants Jerusalem, man. The Temple Mount having, the, having all the Aqsa Mosque and having the Golden Dome on it is not an accident, okay? Because we know that, that the Bible says that Antichrist will sit himself in the temple of God, show himself that he is God. Satan wanted to be the most high God. Read Isaiah 14. Not going to happen. Nope. Okay, well, what's the next best thing he could have? He could take the place that's considered the most 
radical, wonderful, powerful place that people look at geographically on the earth for a place of worship, which is Jerusalem. Now we know that Jesus said the true worship is a worship in what? Spirit and truth. We can worship anywhere, amen? But Satan wants that because he knows a lot of professing Christians looked at that place. The Jews looked at that place. A billion and a half plus Muslims looked at that place as their, most, as their third most holy place. And I've told you before, what is inscribed on the Al-Aqsa Mosque? Allah is God and he has what? No son. And when Jesus talked about the spirit of Antichrist and the Antichrist, he says he'll come, he won't come, and he goes, I come in my father's name, son, father's son, and you receive me not. If another one comes in his own name, him you will receive. Okay? And so it's a denial of God having a son. And 1 John 2 says, he that denies the father and the son is Antichrist. And you could have a stronger Antichrist declaration on the Temple Mount than that. It's just like, we're waiting for you. And the Jews can't even go on the Temple Mount. The, the police there are the Palestinian police, you know. Muslims, so-called, you know. I say Palestinian, so-called. Because it was named Philistine land by an enemy of Israel after they were destroyed again. And Palestine, the word Palestine comes from that. It was a mockery, a name of a mockery given by an emperor against Israel. So I don't even like to use the term Palestinian unless I'm using it in the context, which I just did. It's the land of Israel. It's the promised land. Amen? Now, you heard the uh, 19 or 1898. This was, you know, 50 years before they were a country again. 50 years before their country. Mark Twain, considered America's greatest writer, right? Uh, he writes an essay regarding, uh, you know, uh, Jews and their plight and so forth. And I, I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff, but uh, that, I, you know, because I've read some of this before. But one of my favorite things he writes in this 50 years before they become a country again, and having not been a country for like 1,800 and some years, he says, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous, dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of has always been heard of. He is prominent on the planet as many other people and his commercial importance is extravagant, out, extravagantly out of proportion to the smallest of his bulk. And he goes into all these different things and about the, the, you know, their success and he goes on he, a little further to say he could be vain of himself and be excused for it if he says, well he goes on, he says the Egyptian, the Babylonian and the Persian rose, filled the planet and made the sound of splendor, then faded into a dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Romans followed, he said, and made a vast noise and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out and they sit in the twilight now or have vanished. The Jew, he says, the Jew saw them all, beat them and is now and has always been exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no doling of alertness of his aggressive mind. All things are mortal. All things are mortal. All things are mortal but the Jew. All of the forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Mr. Twain, open your Bible, okay? There's a secret of his immortality. It's not him. It's the power of God, amen? Be faithful because he knows he has a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he knows their descendants are human flesh like all of us, Gentiles and Jews, needing grace, needing forgiveness, right? Needing to repent. But his promises still stand up because he knew, always knew that he would have a remnant. But he talks about Israel. And I'm not going to take time to 
uh, read this next, the, the other quote, because it's so powerful. He talks about how it's desolate because he made a trip around Jerusalem and through Israel. He's like, there's barely a shrub here, you know? And he says, it's hard to believe this was Israel. And that's exactly what it says. It said, you'll become a curse and hissing to the Jews wherever you go on the planet. People hiss. Look what happened to these guys. That's exactly what, what happened. Mark, Mark Twain's right about like, this was Israel, right? And there's, there are people who say, the land is desolate. You know, what happened kind of thing. That's exactly what happened. And it's mind-boggling. And that there would be this anti-Semitism. But even this, guys, we know in the Old Testament, they would, be, they would reject the Lord and they'd reject their Messiah. Remember that? What does Isaiah chapter 53 say? It says all these wonderful things about the Messiah. All these wonderful things about Jesus. And this is what people miss. Hope You probably know this because I've shared this or, or you've seen it before on your own. But uh, people go to Isaiah 52, the end. Then they go to chapter 53, which we don't have time to study. But they look at these prophecies and they're like, I mean, put it this way. One for Israel. We have a Christian station 24-7. And, when are the, uh, and you should check it out. It's a goodfight.org, uh, goodfight radio. And we have One for Israel is one of our shows. And One for Israel are Hebrews, Jewish, beautiful, Jesus-loving Christians who, you know, show you how to witness the Jews and talk about God's plan for Israel. Uh, they're from the land. But they have a great video out where they're taking Isaiah chapter 53 to people. And they're reading it to people. And they're reading it, and, and you know what? When they're reading it, the people that they're reading it to don't realize it's Isaiah 53 from Tanakh in the Old Testament. And like, who's this about? And they let them know at a certain point. But they're reading about, he'll be cut off from the land of the living. Oh, yes, he'll be killed. Oh, the, you know, all of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord laid the iniquity of us all upon him, you know. He'll be given as a sin offering, the language of sacrifice, right? He'll justify many. All these things about Jesus the Messiah. And it's like astonishing to them that this says this. Wow, yeah, it says this. And it's like, they're like, oy vey, this is, you know. And they realize who the Messiah would be. Then they share with them that's Isaiah 3 in the Old Testament, which I've shared with you before. When you go to synagogue, they skip chapter 52 and 53 when they're going through Isaiah. Go from Isaiah 51. Okay, next week. Open to Isaiah 54, 54. Quick, quick, quick. Oh, don't look down. Just go there. You know, I'm not sure. I don't say it like that, I'm sure. But, you know, it's kind of crazy. Go to Isaiah 53. Just look at a few verses with me. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm? And I want to go into chapter 2, but I don't have time to get into this whole thing. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right there is a supercharged verse if you understand the rest of Isaiah because the context of the armor of the Lord being revealed is that nobody was there to stand in the gap. There was none righteous, not one, and nobody could would even stand in the gap to effect salvation. So the Lord said, I will bear my own arm. God himself will do that. And that shows you why Isaiah 53 is not talking about Israel. It's talking about the Messiah who died in Israel's place. The arm of the Lord is talking about God becoming a man, like Isaiah chapter 7, like Isaiah chapter 9. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Isn't that interesting? He was despised and forsaken of men. 
a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now what's heavy about this is this is commentary, and many, and I believe this, this is what the Jews are going to be saying when they recognize that they had rejected the Messiah, and his name is Yeshua, the Mashiach, HaMashiach, the Messiah. They're going to say, Surely our griefs he himself bore, verse 4, and our sorrows he carried. We, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I mean, he bore our sins. Wow, I get it now. But we thought he was stricken and, and rejected by God. We, we totally blew it. And how do we know this? Because in Zechariah chapter 12, it mentions at the battle of Armageddon, in the first four or five verses, that those who try to mess with Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye, Zechariah 2, 10 chapters earlier, 10 chapters later, verses 8 through 10, that area again, same like 2, 8 through 10. Right in that area, it says, at first, before you get to that area, by the way, it says they'll, t- they'll try to touch Jerusalem. will be like trying to move a heavy stone. And those who mess with it, try to move it, will be severely injured. You don't mess with Jerusalem right now, do you? Pretty crazy, huh? Little tiny postage stamp, no bigger than like right around the size of Rhode Island, guys. Okay, God's in control, man. Like Satan hates it. Liberals hate it, you know. In fact, if a few years ago, Israel tried to get Israel, supporting Israel, said the liberals tried to get supporting Israel off the Democratic map. Kind of backfired, you know, but a lot of them would love to be done with Israel. Now, it's interesting because it says that the Lord will protect his people, and it talks about how, it talks about the Battle of Armageddon. Chapter 12 and chapter 14, the beginning, you want to read about the Battle of Armageddon in the Old Testament. It's pretty heavy. And then in verses 8 through 10 in that area, it says that when the Messiah comes back, it says they'll see him whom they what? They'll see the one that they pierced. They're going to see the Lord that they pierced. And you know that's been fulfilled, has a partial fulfillment already? Because the Gospel of John, when he's on the cross and the Jews were looking at him, it says this is the one they had pierced. He quotes that scripture. But then in Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, you know what it says? Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. They shall all see him, right? Every eye. They also which pierced him. And all kings of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. So there's, that's the ultimate fulfillment. The, the, everyone's going to see him, even those who pierced him. And we're told in Zechariah 12, in the Old Testament, I shared this with a Jewish Orthodox uh, doctor that Lisa's doctor actually when we're, before she had one of our babies and we we're sharing the gospels with him and I told him that that's in the scripture he goes that's not in the Old Testament and then oh let's check it out he was like and then he moved to New York you know like I hope I didn't chase him away because <laughs> I actually went into his office with Lisa we talked I felt bad for other patients waiting for him because I witnessed him for 45 minutes sometimes and uh he was a great doctor and uh I told the story years and years ago but we used to have a picture I still have it on at least my wife takes down some of the pictures I love, but she has better taste than me, I guess. But it was an awesome picture of a disciple under a tree, right? And he's reading the word. And then you look at the tree, and you can't see it, but once you do see it, you can't unsee it. And the tree, the leaves and everything, it's, the, you know, it's like the picture of Jesus in the shot of Turin almost, that kind of look, you know? You're like, whoa, that's obvious the artist did that, you know? And the first time I saw it, it was the same picture on a, a commentary of some, uh, that I had. And I was throwing, moving my commentary over. I'm like, whoa! I didn't realize that was supposed to be there. And then I couldn't unsee it, right? Well, I went into his office. And I was talking about typology, how Jesus is everywhere. Guess what's behind a big picture? And behind him is that picture. My Jewish doctor. I go, Dr. Tenenbaum, Jesus, man, is everywhere through the Bible. So I started going through typology, how Joseph was rejected by his brothers, just as Jesus was rejected by their descendants. 
you know, Jacob's kids, right? 12 tribes of Israel rejecting Joseph, throwing him into a pit, giving over to the Gentiles, him becoming second in power to Pharaoh, feeding the world, the Gentiles, then giving food to the Jews at the end. Well, that's Jesus, handed over by not Judah, which Joseph was, but Judas, that's a Hebrew name for Judas is Judah, right? Given over to the Gentiles, right? Same deal. Right hand of power, giving bread to the world. We take bread and because he gave his bread for all of us all over the world. And then in the end, Israel will see too. It's all God's plan. To understand God's plan, you have to understand God, what God says about Israel. You have to understand Israel. You have to understand Jesus. You put, those are the keys to world history and biblical prophecy and everything. Is understanding God's plan with Israel and God's plan with Messiah and how those two things go together. And the Gentile powers are connected to those things. And it's interesting. They say, they'll say when they see him and they pierce. Now we know they're going to be weeping. They're going to be crying. Because in Zechariah it says when they see him and they pierce, they'll start to wail and they'll bawl and the different tribes will weep. And then a fountain of cleansing will be opened to them. They'll get saved after that. They'll recognize it and they'll repent, many of the Jews, Right? But what will they be saying when they're weeping? I, I believe we know. Right here, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves thought that he was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. This is a prayer of repentance. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And it goes on and on. The whole chapter. And how are they going to be? Because the Spirit of God, it says, will come upon them. The Spirit of supplication and grace will be upon them, it says. So God's Holy Spirit will be opening their eyes to his entire plan. Right now, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a veil over Israel. Okay? God's using all this in his sovereignty to bring about salvation for the entire world. But he's not done with the Jews. Amen. John Loftus uh, and Mark Ahrens in their book, The Secret War Against the Jews, How Western Espionage Betrayed the Jewish People, they state, interestingly, quote, for more than 20 centuries, the Jewish people, more than any other segment of humanity, have been persecuted, uprooted, and annihilated. Isn't that interesting? That has been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different people groups. This happened to them more than anybody. Just mind-boggling. Now, when I'm mentioning understanding the big picture, understand that, and we don't have time to get the book of Daniel, but we're going to get a little bit of that uh, this Sunday or the next, you know. I'm going to do a couple different things. One thing I'm, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, just dealing with the whole COVID situation in, in these days and how to navigate that, you know. But also understanding that, uh, that when you see the nations and the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of represented different nations that would empires that would oppress Israel. It's really remarkable when you look at that history. But what's really interesting, Jesus didn't say, now this is really interesting, Jesus talked about how when the, he was rejected, after that, not one stone would be standing on another. Temple would be thrown down, right? And, oh, 37, 38 or so years later, Titus, in a war that actually started 66 AD to 70, overthrew, uh, you know, Jerusalem. And every stone was cast, thrown down, and so forth. According to Josephus, uh, a Syrian conscript had fired some flaming uh, arrows into 
that land into, I'm sorry, that temple. And the gold melted and got in the crevices and they threw every stone to get to the gold. But they weren't supposed to torch the temple, supposedly. Now, Josephus is either given us accurate history or because now, because he's turned coat, he was a Jewish uh, general. He kind of did the Masada thing. And when Masada, they, all, they said, let's just commit suicide. Well, he said, let's commit suicide. They all were committing suicide, but he decided not to at the end. He said, I'll be your historian for Rome. Okay, crazy story. So he's one of the top historians of the first century. And we learn about Jesus from a secular Jewish mind uh, in the first century, or I should say a non-Christian mind. He understood that Jesus existed. He was real. Didn't make qualms about it. But it's interesting because Jesus said after the temple was destroyed, he told us the future of Israel until he returns. And listen to what he said. Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, now Paul talked about that when the fullness of Gentiles comes in, then the deliverer will come in from Zion. Okay, I'm not saying that's exactly the same time period of the times the Gentiles be being fulfilled, but the times of Gentiles, the times of, of Gentile oppression against the nation of Israel. And that's going to end when Jesus Christ comes back to the second coming because the, the, during the tribulation, that's the day of man, amen? When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that's the day of the Lord. It's not 666, the number of man anymore. It's like Jesus Christ rules and reigns on earth and inaugurates his millennial kingdom, amen? So he establishes his kingdom. But right now it says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of Gentiles are fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? That would make no sense if after Jesus died, it's been for 2,000 years the same as when he was alive and Jesus had just been living there in peace and just like the other nations, with a war here and there, but just still, no. Right now, to this day, you go to Jerusalem, right? There's Muslims everywhere. There's Muslims on the Temple Mount, and they're trotting underfoot. And we've gone there, and we go up there. We can go up, us Gentile believers can go up there, you know. I don't know about right now, you know, but we've been, had like five trips to Israel. Plan on doing another one, but we'll see what happens. With, they got real strict restrictions with COVID and everything, so we've got to see what happens in the next few years, you know. But we've got to go up there and sneak our Bibles up, you know. You're not allowed to read your, bring your Bible up. I'm bringing my Bible up, you know. Just going to kind of just hold it like this and read it. Obey God rather than men, amen? amen? So anyway, you just have all these amazing prophecies uh, being fulfilled. Now, how is it that if God's keeping his promise to Israel, how does that make us also the apple of God's eye? Because the name of this message is you are the apple of God's eye. We know the Jews, the nation of Israel, are the apple of God's eye. But I want you to go to, we won't go to this passage. I'll just mention it because we'll go to it in a minute maybe. But remember Romans 11? I won't even go to it because I want to make sure we get done in time. But remember Romans 11 where Paul talks about the Jews and the Gentiles and how the Jews are the natural branches in the olive tree? And as Gentiles were the unnatural branches if you're a Gentile believer, Right? And the unnatural branches were grafted in against nature to be part of the same olive tree. We share the same tree together. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, this mystery where God had a plan to save not just Jews, but Gentiles, and that we'd be part of one body, the church. Amen? Now, some look at that and say, oh, yeah, it's just the church now. Wrong. You know, there's also a plan he has with the nation of Israel. In fact, in chapter 11 of Romans, when he talks about Branches were broken off, you might say, so we could be grafted. He says, quite right. But they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand because of your faith. 
don't be high-minded, but fear, for if they were broken off, the natural branches, how much more shall he break off the unnatural branches? So he says, don't be high-minded or conceited in your estimation of yourself, right? It's he's the one that upholds us, amen? And then he goes on to say, and if they don't continue in their unbelief, they are able to be grafted back in what? Again. And then he says, goes on to say that the deliverer will come out of Zion, right? And all Israel shall be what? Shall be saved. Now, some go to that text. Some people that are, you know, reconstructionists, some that believe in replacement theology. And he says, oh, well, those that are, you know, will be saved in the end of Israel. It's talking about the Israel God, the church. Wrong. It's not talking about the church in that context. The all Israel shall be saved is in the context that they can be grafted back in again. And he's contrasting Israel with the church. Amen. He says that all Israel will be saved and the deliverer will come from Zion and so forth and to Jacob and so forth. Talking about Israel being saved in the end. That's exactly what the Lord promised. And that's exactly what you read when you read the book of Revelation because you also don't just read of the Gentile bride church, but you read in Revelation chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 14 of, this, of, of people from, every, from the different 12 tribes of Israel. Amen? Amen. Whose names, who, he has his, his name in their foreheads and so forth. You have the woman that he protects in the wilderness. And we know that woman there is not specifically the church because in Revelation chapter 12, he sees a sign. He sees the sun and the moon and 12 stars, right? And it's a woman. And then it's this woman is giving birth to a man-child. And then the man-child is caught to heaven before Satan could try to destroy the man-child. Well, if you know biblical imagery and you realize the book of Revelation is constantly looting the Old Testament, and that's the key to understand the book of Revelation, you understand that when Joseph had his dream, right? Remember that? About his brothers and his mom and his dad bowing down to him because he's a picture of Christ who would be rejected by his brethren. It's a, he sees the sun and the moon and 12 stars. Jacob had a bunch of sons, right? 12 tribes of Israel came from them. That's Israel. Roman Catholic commentaries say, this is, this is Mary. How beautiful this is. No, it's not Mary. Okay, it's Israel. Okay, go back to the imagery in Genesis. He sees 12 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him. And that happened to him, literally, right? Not to a person because his mom was there, of course, and dad, but it was a picture of them recognizing, doing obedience, recognizing that God had chosen Joseph as a special son when they went, the sons went to Israel, or should say Egypt, amen, and recognized, wow, the one that we pierced, and now he's feeding us bread. Yeah, it's all a picture, guys. It's all beautiful. It's all way powerful. And so that was a picture. And then you have this woman giving birth to a man-child. Who's that? That's the seed that would come from the woman. Amen? That would crush the serpent's head. And he tried to destroy the man-child, but he couldn't. And he ascended to heaven after he said it was finished, right? We go to the Gospel of John and elsewhere. And then, you know, that's how this whole thing goes down in the end. It's just all fits together from Genesis to Revelation so beautifully. You couldn't make it up, okay? But you have over, you know, it's just amazing. You have over 40 writers, right? Three different languages. You know, well over 1,500 years composing this book with one message from Genesis to Revelation, right? And it fits together like a, a hand in a, in a glove. And it's interesting, how is it that we are the apple of his eye? We'll go to Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three. And we go there, just look at verse six. Galatians chapter three, verse six. Even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham wasn't saved by keeping the law of Moses. That came later to show them that they needed to be saved by faith. Therefore, verse 7, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are what? 
the sons of Abraham. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a child of Abraham. Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Talking about Gentile believers here, guys. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. That's how we become children of Abraham, through faith. In fact, go ahead and fast forward a few verses to verse 28 and 29, the end of the chapter. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, do you belong to Christ? Then you are what? Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You are the apple of the Lord's eye. And you know how beautiful that is? It's so beautiful that when things get rough, like they got rough for the Jews several times. Now, if you're a Jew that rejects the Messiah and refuses and hates God and doesn't want to come to the Lord and dies, you know, with your finger in the air blaspheming God and you don't want anything to do with uh, Jesus and so forth, you're not saved. Okay, the promises are there. The provision is there, amen? But you, everybody starts to come to Jesus to be saved, amen? John Hagee, he teaches a false version of the gospel. He says you don't need to tell Jews about Jesus because they have their own covenant with the Lord. They don't need to come to Jesus to be saved. And he gets a lot of pats on the back by a lot of Jewish leaders in Israel and he's able to speak to the top guys because they love that message. Do you think Paul would say that? Do you think the author of Hebrews would say that? who says there's no more sacrifice for sins if you reject Jesus, right? You think Jesus would say that? He said to the Jew- Jewish leaders that you are your father the devil, okay? And, and, and they're not children of Abraham? Because guess what? Paul said uh, there are Jews who are Jews according to the flesh, and God has a promise for Israel still, even in their unbelief. But a Jew that is saved and a child of Abraham spiritually is one who comes to faith in Messiah. Which, by the way, all the first Christians that were saved Christians were what? Jewish believers. The first church council was in Acts 15, and it was whether Gentiles could also become part of the Christian church. Isn't that heavy? Because the new covenant was a new covenant whereby he brought his people back to himself and extended also wonderfully to Gentiles as well. But this is what's heavy. In the tribulation period, there is going to be a persecution of the Jews that's going to be ramped up for sure and against Israel. But after it says that Satan went after the woman in Revelation chapter 12, I would like to go there, but we run out of time. But I'm, I'm telling you what it says, basically. You go read it later. It's a powerful chapter. When you look at what happens there, he goes after the woman, Israel. She gives birth to a man-child, and he is caught up. But then she goes into the wilderness for how many days? Anybody remember? Three and a half years. And he protects her there for, for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. He protects her. And then he's upset. He can't get to her because, you know, the earth protects. God used the earth to protect the woman and so forth. And then he sets his sights, Satan, on those, her offspring. Okay? We're the offspring of Abraham through faith. Those who keep the, those who have the, their faith in Jesus and keep the commandments of God. Those who know who Jesus is. Okay? And then you go on and read a few verses later, Revelation 13. He makes war on the saints. Who are the saints? Revelation 19. Verses 5 through 9, we read that uh, it's time to give the bride her reward and bless the, and, the, and give the, he gives them white robes, which is the righteousness of the saints. So the bride is the saints. The bride's the church. Persecutes the church. So it's quite interesting. But what's going to happen at that time? Guess what? Christians are going to be hunted down. Those who are going to captivity will go into captivity. Those, so some will be in prison. 
That could be you if it happened in our lifetime. Those who are to be killed with the sword will be killed with the sword. Verses 8 through 10 of Revelation 13. Some will be persecuted to death. Some will, uh, Jesus said, flee to the mountains. And those in Judea and so forth. Some will be subsisting, not taking the mark of the beast and be able to subsist in some place away from society perhaps. Uh, you read uh, Isaiah chapter 24, 25. Guess what? Others it says, shut your door until my indignation is passed. It's like a, a new Passover, you know. And that's the kind of language used in the book of Revelation, this Passover kind of language with, with, with Antichrist, Pharaoh being a picture of Antichrist and, and the false prophet having two horns just like Pharaoh had two magicians, you know, and so forth. And it's kind of interesting. And, and escape into the wilderness, which you just talked about in Revelation chapter 12 again, but on a, on a global level, not just with Egypt, really heavy. But guess what's going to be happening to Christians? They're going to be in prison, as I talked about, Revelation 13. They're going to be deprived. You can't have food if you don't, Take the mark of the beast. They're going to be, go through all kinds of things. That's what, Revel, that, think about it now, put this together. That's what Matthew 25 is about. When he separates the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are put on the left hand. By the way, Satanists call Satanism the left hand path. It's kind of interesting. You think of who's the left, by the way? The lost group that's for killing babies and everything else. And he puts the, 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 the goats on his left. And goats are interesting because they just, they'll eat anything, you know. There's no, they don't, they're not discriminating about what they eat, you know, and, and they'll butt each other's heads and they'll just, you know. Now, I'm not saying all liberals are like that. I'm just saying, you know, some are. And then on the right, you have the sheep, right? And the sheep that we see today, little, you know, cuddly, the sheep weren't like that back in those days. You know, you look at mountain sheep, pretty radical. Okay? But they're obedient to their shepherd. And he says to the sheep, I was hungry and you what? You fed me, right? I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Right? It's kind of a trip. And I was in prison and you what? Visited me. How are Christians going to treat each other during the tribulation period? Right before that. We're going to help each other, amen? It's heavy. But the goats... When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was hungry. You didn't give, when I was naked, right, you didn't clothe me. That's tribulation, guys. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. Think of the context. This is that Christ's second coming after the tribulation period. Is this making sense? But why does Jesus say, and he says, what you did on the least of these, my brother, you did unto me. How we treat other believers is how we treat who? Jesus. How we don't treat, if we treat believers bad, that's how we treat Jesus. Because we are now also the apple of his eye. And when you poke at Christians, true believers, you're poking God in the eye. It's heavy when you look at it from a prophetic perspective too. So I want you to get the whole picture, how you are the apple of the Lord's eye. And you know it's heavy because when he says to them, remember when Saul, before he was the apostle Paul, and he was hunting down Christians? And Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and he fell down. And what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's in Acts chapter 9. How was Paul poking or persecuting Jesus? He was killing, he was killing Christians, right? He was killing as, you know, by way of the Jewish leaders, having Christians put to death. And he was touching Jesus. 
And it says, in all their affliction of Israel, he says, I was afflicted, the Lord says in, the old, in Isaiah. And when believers are afflicted, we're the body of Christ. Amen? The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need in you. Guess what you are? The eye, the hand, the body of Christ. And we're persecuted. He feels it. When we're afflicted, in some sense, he's afflicted. And then when he comes and judges the world and sets the nations on the left and the right, to the wicked, what you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. We're his body. Amen? So I say this to you. If things get crazy in the coming years, you need to understand that the Lord loves you, that he's with you. If you're trusting him, you're the apple of his eye. Amen? Are you with me? Praise God. Can we all stand?